What's up? Good morning. Nice to see you again. Did you miss me? Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you very much for that. Well, I missed you too. Hey, let's, you know, since it's a smaller crowd, let's, let's take 30 seconds each and let's just go around the room and just tell me what's been going on. No, but I'm going to do that. Cue the, uh, cue the slides. Since I was with you last, we had a big deal at the Halter home. My daughter, Allie, got married. She's, um... Thank you. I will, uh, I will take the applause. We'll also be doing a second offering where you can go ahead and help me recover from that. But we, my wife and I bought a little four-acre ranch just south of downtown Denver, about 20 minutes. We call it an urban ranch. We, uh, we were able to afford it because these ranches are all on these uh, water wells that are completely dry. So we thought, let's just roll the dice. It'll eventually rain in Denver. So we bought this little place, and it was so cool. When Allie got engaged, we thought, let's just save some money and do it here. And so about a year ago, we started this wedding prep. And it would be what I would call biblical proportion wedding prep. Like you read in the Bible, dads are supposed to start collecting enough wine throughout the year to provide for the entire city for a seven-day experience. So even though it's a 10 a.m. wedding, I started to do that. I made a little wine cellar, all sorts of stuff. And, and then the rest of the stuff was all this, what I had uh, I never heard of. It's called Pinterest. Anybody heard of that? <laughs> never, ever done Pinterest. My wife started going, hey, honey, look at this on Pinterest. I'm like, what's a Pinterest? And so every day, my wife and daughter are showing me stuff that we have to do. They want kind of a vintage farmhouse wedding. So lots of white and goofy stuff like that. So you'll see in this picture right here, Allie and I are walking down a burlap, 300-foot burlap spread. Um, we're coming out of my barn that also has big white drapery around this barn, like a barn needs white drapery, but it was where Allie and I would come out and present ourselves. And so go to the next slide. We had... Uh, she wanted these tables. These are those electrical wheels, like industrial. So you have to spend half a day prying and sawzalling the big metal things that keep them together. And then you take one piece in the back of the pickup truck and you take it home and you nail in all the nails and then you stain it and all that stuff. So we had to do about 15 of those. That took a little time. And um, so let's go to the next one. Here I see the uh, you have... Well, we got at the antique store. So Cheryl and I would go antiquing. Never, ever done that before. I, I would like to do it like annually, once a year. But we started to go two or three times a week. So you'll see that we started to collect wine barrels and doors. We had, I don't know, it seems like we have hundreds of doors. But we just buy, Cheryl go, I like that door. Let's get that. And then those little fluffy ball things. I don't know what those are called. I think they're fluffy balls. But Cheryl would... <laughs> bring home packages of those and you just, you unfluffy them and they take about an hour each for that. So that was a couple months of that. Then go to the next one. You'll see, um, to save money, my wife would say, hey babe, let's put in a $20,000 patio and, and go and build one of those little arbors right up above it. So I, we built, that was all, that was all money saver stuff there. And then go to the next one. We've got my daughter married uh, into a full Hispanic family from Los Angeles, so they wanted what's called a hoopa, a chupa, or something like that. And so we, did, we made that. I had to buy those doors, those little doors right there, those stupid doors that wouldn't work for anything. 
Those were $200 a piece for that thing. So that was awesome again. So go to the next one. So here's some of the ladies. My daughter's on the far left. My wife is on the far right. I don't know who that is in the middle. But these are more dumb stuff we had to buy. Frames. No picture of them. Just buy a frame. And stuff. The wagon wheel over there. See the wagon wheel? Everybody needs one of those. Okay, so lots of concerns when you're doing a wedding. And the biggest concern, honestly, for me was this next slide. Last time I was here, I talked about my son, Ryan, um, has really severe epilepsy he's had since birth. So, you know, 20 seizures a day his whole life. So he, he's been living in an assisted living center. And uh, last time we brought him home, he almost died. In about an hour, we had to call the ambulance, and we were signing his organs away and all sorts of stuff. So we were actually, we were thinking about not bringing him back for the wedding, but Allie wanted him to be in the wedding party so bad that we took a risk. And so the wedding was at 10 a.m., and I got up at 4 a.m. just to start getting stuff going, and I heard Ryan having a seizure at about 4.30. And I was just like, oh, this is not going to work. And um, somehow, about 9 o'clock, Cheryl and a bunch of the ladies just started to drag him into cl- putting clothes on him. And um, he was able to stand up with the rest of the wedding party. And actually, he looks awesome right here. And so he made it. That was a big concern. My other big concern, if you go to the next slide, was how to keep my wife sober during this situation. So that's at 10 a.m. No, she's just happy it's over. She's like, we got through, babe. So, but out of all the prep that we did, honestly, the, the goal was that we would have the whole place ready and sort of done. All the, all the draperies up, all the tables laid out, that we'd have it all done about a week before the wedding so we could chill out. And we did. Everything was perfect. I was like, we got this. And then, um, I don't know if you guys heard, but Denver had the most rain it's ever had in the month of June. And this began a week before the wedding, after everything was under control. The last thing I had set up was that I would re-gravel our entire driveway. So I bought a big dump truck full of gravel, and I wanted it to just, it was a different color. It was just going to, it's like laying bark out. It was just beautiful. And so I, I spent about eight hours in this little trailer behind this little dumpy four-wheeler I have putting gravel out, and uh, we got our first thunderhead that came over at the end of that day, and I watched all the gravel on both sides of my house run down and into my barn, and so that was not so cool. Um, I was like, okay, we can weather that, and so then I relayed the bark. I, I dug it out of the barn and reapplied it everywhere, and, and then the next day, it rained again. And so then the third day, we're now two days before the wedding, and I'm eight hours a day laying the same, like, there's nothing more depressing than seeing the same set of rocks that you just saw yesterday, and you got to rake. So when we are talking about the lake effect, it dawns on me how important the weather really is. Have you ever noticed that? That's why we have the weatherman. Weather matters. Issues come and go. Um, we're not going to share pat answers this morning about storms that come into your life. We're going to read a passage of Scripture. Um, but I want you to know that I agree with many people that say what makes up our lives, really the, the legacy of our lives, what makes the story of our lives, what is the story that our kids pick up about our lives, is not so much what we accomplish or what we do. It's how we weather the really bad days in life. That, that really becomes the thing that you speak from. 
It's the reason why people will respect you and be drawn to you. There's something really powerful about storms. And so I'm going to take you a passage of Scripture. Um, it's really the storm Scripture. It's going to be in Mark 4, 35. And um, I'm just going to walk you through this a little bit. We, I had us read it all the front end. We're just going to go kind of word by word for a minute here. And let's start in verse 35. It says, That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let's go over to the other side. Okay, that would maybe just normally go by us, but um, the book of Matthew has the same story recorded. And this is where we get that really interesting interplay. There's a bunch of people around Jesus. They're being drawn to him because he's been doing amazing miracles. He's been healing people, and he's been feeding people. So there's lots of people that are checking him out. And there's people that want to follow him. You have the, the inner circle, the disciples, that get to go across the lake with him. But there's lots of other people that wanted to go. And people started to go, hey, can we go where you're going? And that's where he said this statement. He said, hey, there's uh, foxes out of holes and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, where you would like to go with me, I just want you to know that it's not that good. And then another man says, well, I, I would like to follow you, but I have to bury my dad first. And that's where Jesus says kind of a hard thing. It's still hard to listen to. He says, look, you're going to have to let the dead bury the dead. But somehow the, the, I guess, context around this passage of Scripture is the idea that where Jesus takes us, oftentimes he knows that there are going to be storms. There are going to be seasons of life that he's going to pull us through. There's going to be places that he asks us to go. There's going to be things that he sort of puts before us to do. And Jesus knows that stuff is going to happen there that may not have happened if you stayed on the existing side of the lake. And so just as we get started, um, I want to deal with a fear I think a lot of us have when we really think, many of us believe in Jesus, but we oftentimes are hesitant to actually follow him because we know the story of Jesus. We know that a God that loves the universe allows his son to come down to the earth and live and to struggle so that we don't have to struggle nearly as much. And then as Jesus begins to walk on the earth, he doesn't sort of shy away from the storms. He actually will see a thunderhead. He'll go, we're going to go over there. Because inside of that storm are people that he loves, and he's trying to bring them through. And so when you, when you sign up to follow Jesus, it really is this issue of following and somehow trying to get a context for the, the storms that are going to hit because of that. Now, we're going to find that not all storms are... Well, maybe no, none of the storms are actually caused by Jesus, but he just knows that they're there, and so he's going to pull us in. Remember this one thing. This would be extra credit. The safest place you can possibly ever be is with Jesus wherever he is, even if he's in a danger zone. Does that make sense? The safest place you can ever be is wherever Jesus is at at that moment. Therefore, the, maybe the least safe place out there is any place where Jesus is not, right? So many of us, we try to, we don't want all the stuff that's happening in the world. We're afraid that that would touch our kids. We try to shield our lives from as many storms. We already got enough problems, so why do I need to like really go after Jesus? But I do want to just let you know that this is, that's what's unique about a Christian. It's not so much our belief systems that set us apart. It's what we really believe about Jesus when we follow him. And so, Let's just continue. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. I had never, ever seen this idea that there were other boats. I always just preached right through this. But apparently, 
Those other boats are going to be important. Hopefully we get to them. And a a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so it was nearly swamped. Anybody know what a squall is? You ever heard that? There's lots of language in the Bible about storms and waves, but this is the only time a squall is referenced. Um, Any of you see the Perfect Storm movie? That's where most of us got introduced to the concept. The squall was this body of water that's coming at you that you don't expect. It's much bigger than you could ever prepare for. And it's, it's all of a sudden, where it used to be calm, it just it goes berserk. And so here we have a squall. Uh, it's on a lake where the guys have been hundreds of times. They're fishermen. This is their lake. Every morning on this lake, it's completely glass where they would go out and they would fish. That's what they know of this body of water. And all of a sudden, it comes out of nowhere. When you think about why we struggle with big storms, I think it's just one issue, is that we weren't expecting it. Uh, People that really study the human nature, the psychology, often talk about the issue of trauma. That when something comes, when you get a phone call that says, we just got your biopsy report back. When you get that call and it goes south, there's actually a trauma moment for you. When there's been something that's happened in a relationship of physical abuse, of sexual abuse, when you've lost that job and now you're going to lose the house, you go down the line. When you have trauma events, it's just very, very hard to cope. And so when we think about, like, I was just thinking, like, in the last month, here are three sort of squalls that came into my existence. Um, none of them were my direct family. They were all my, some of my closest friends and family. Um, one was an adulterous situation within my extended family. We got a call. And it was uh, people very close to us that we hang out with all the time. All of a sudden, we can't like we used to. And the cousins and the kids can't hang out. It's just, it, it just erupted and wrecked everything that used to be a normal, calm lake. Uh, another young boy that used to take care of my son, he'd take Ryan fishing. Um, he was a very troubled kid. I pulled him in and out of some juvie halls. But he was, he was so kind to our son, we just let him always take Ryan fishing. And I got a photo of him just about four days ago. And he was in ICU in a hospital. He had overdosed in another state. And so the mom was just saying, I just want you to know, pray for Zach. And then the third was, uh, again, one of my closest friends. He pastors a pretty well-known church. And uh, we've been with their family many, many times. Beautiful family. As far as looking at family that does it right, this is a family that, that Cheryl and I are inspired by. And... Um, he called me the other day and he just said, look, I just need you to pray. He goes, um, he goes, our daughter, and she's 15, she just shared with us about three years of journal entries where she is desperately processing a different sexual orientation that she, she's just been struggling with. She just now told us. And uh, we were talking it through and he just goes, I just don't know what to do. Um, and he just talked about his incredible love for his daughter and more pain about the struggle that she's going to go through. Obviously, they know that it's going to deeply affect everything from all the stuff that happens inside churches with how pe- different people see that situation. It just, it just it comes out of nowhere. And so I want you, I know that some of you have had some of those nowhere situations come up. And in those moments, I know because of how Cheryl and I have felt through thousands of epileptic seizures that we oftentimes don't have a theology for it. The, the pat answers, the Bible verses just don't necessarily always make it all okay. 
Any of you had moments like that? It, it transcends, I guess, just simple stuff. It's deep. It's a heavy storm. And I want you to know that maybe in those moments, the only thing that helps is to just know, according to the scriptures, that Jesus is in the boat. He's just in the boat. The scriptures talk about, or they, they name him lots of things, but one of them is Emmanuel. And what that means is it's not God against you. It's not God mad at you. It's not God doing something at you or to you. It's God what? It's God with you. And God with you means literally, I will never leave you or forsake you. Even if you got yourself into the jam, even if you're thinking this storm has come because of what I've been doing, I, I earned it, I own it, it's my fault, God is still in that boat with you. And that to me is maybe for Cheryl and I, that's what's got us through our stuff. It's just the fact that we knew somehow he was present. And interestingly, it doesn't just say he's in the boat. It says that he's relatively calm. He's asleep. You can't get any calmer than that. I don't want to like go too deep into why he was sleeping, whatever. My guess is that he feels like I do after speaking at a church service. He's tired. He's been with people who have been all over him, and he's just gassed. And so he's out, and, uh, but he's in the boat, and he's calm. I want to read a quote. I read uh, Oswald Chambers every morning, if I can. And this is one that has always, it's actually changed my life and how I view those moments. And he says this. It's titled, Are You Ever Disturbed? And the scripture is out of John. It says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. He says, there are times when our peace is based upon ignorance. What he means is sometimes we just have this sort of goofy belief system where we go, oh, it'll just all work out. God's in control. But it's too surfacey. And he says, sometimes when our peace is based upon ignorance, in other words, we really don't know what God's doing, uh, that sometimes we awaken to the facts of real life, inner peace is impossible unless we begin to receive it from Jesus. He says, have I ever received what Jesus speaks? My peace I give unto you. It is a peace which comes from looking into his face and realizing his undisturbedness. Do you catch that? When you look into the face of Jesus, that you notice that he's calm. He doesn't seem to be disturbed. That's where we actually can begin to find peace. He says, are you painfully disturbed just now? Distracted by the waves and billows of God's provincial providential permission. In other words, are you bummed out? Are you confused? Are you getting cynical because of what you see God allowing to happen around you? And then having, as it were, you've turned over all the boulders of your belief. In other words, you, all those simple things you used to believe and not think about, now all of a sudden you go, well, that doesn't work like I thought, and that doesn't work like I thought. And you start to get dark and you grow cynical. It happens to most of us. He says, then look upon and receive the undisturbedness of the Lord, Jesus. Reflected peace is the proof that you are right with God because you are, are at liberty to turn your mind to him. If you are not right with God, you can never turn your mind anywhere but on yourself. So he asks, are you looking to Jesus now, literally into his face, in the immediate matter that is pressing and receiving from him peace? If so, he will be a gracious benediction of peace in and through you. 
Jesus is in the boat and he's calm. It doesn't matter what we are going through. He's not wringing his hands. He's not fretting. He's not sweating down his brow. I don't know what Jesus' face looks like to you, but that's an important part of our, our belief system, not just that we believe in, that something will just work out. We literally believe in a person. And so with that, we can look into his face and it changes things. So let's keep going. And so Jesus then begins to say this. No, actually, let's go back. It says the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drowned? Isn't it natural that in these times that we have this natural assumption is that Jesus' presence will mean everything's peachy. And if you've lived in this life long enough, you realize, no, peachy doesn't really work all that much. Um, Cheryl often gets angry at me because I get, I get angry at God. That's my natural response. Whenever, whenever Ryan would have a seizure, my initial, immediate, momentary emotion is, seriously, thank you for not helping. Remember a time I was sleeping on the couch. I normally would sleep with Ryan because he would always cry out right before a seizure, so I'd normally be up in his bed. I fell asleep watching Sports Center. I hear him cry out one night. And so I went from a dead sleep to Puma-like agility up the stairs to try to get to him. He's already in a seizure. And so um, I made sure he was not going to fall off the couch. And it usually lasts about four minutes. And so right when that was over, I went in to the bathroom just to do bathroom stuff. And next thing I know, I'm, I don't know where I am at. I'm in complete darkness. I can hear Cheryl muttering something to me. So I'm starting to move my... I realize, oh, the shower curtain's on my head. And then I realize, oh, I think I just passed out. Apparently, when you go from dead sleep to sprinting upstairs and you're older, your blood doesn't know what to do. So it takes about a minute and a half lag time, and then your body goes, oh, you're about to pass out, Jackson. So I was standing at the commode, and apparently I must have fallen back. My sweats were down to the ankles, and my feet are now sticking out of the bathtub. The shower curtain had come over the top of me, and Cheryl was saying, what are you doing? That's all I heard. What are you doing? And I said, I don't know. Why don't you ask Jesus? He's the one that seems to have like, you know, be playing this joke on it. I mean, that's how I perceive struggle. But that's not the reality. Okay? God's with it. He doesn't cause the storms. He just is in it with you. And the assumptions need to go. He's at least there with you. Now, I will say this. There's a moment here where... Jesus calms the storm. They ask him, and he actually goes, chill out. And all the waters go back to the way it was, completely calm, the way the boys were used to it. Now, see, me and some pastors, one of them from Willow Creek, was on this lake a few years ago, and we showed up, and we were a bunch of sweaty men that had been stuck in a van all day. It was about 100 and some degrees. We get to Tiberias. The guy lets us out of the van. He goes, hey, the sea is right down there just... You're free to go. It's midnight. It's completely dark. And we all, like a bunch of pasty white, semi-overweight suburban pastors, go diving in. We're stripping off. Like, you don't want the picture of this. It, will, it was not a pretty picture. And we're all diving in. We start swimming out, me and the two guys I brought from Denver. And uh, we just started to notice the sunlight was on the water. It was perfectly still. We could be 200 yards apart and we could just talk like this because the, the sound carries. So imagine this. The squall just happened. And Jesus begins to go 
He says this, why are you so afraid? And remember, there's other boats around. My guess is at this point, the squall has stopped. Everybody went from gasping for air to everybody focused on Jesus. And Jesus goes, why are you so afraid? Well, we were, it was a squall. Did you know what a squall was? We just had a squall. And Jesus is trying to help probably in that silence. He's probably going, guys, you've just seen me have power and authority over death. You've seen me have power and authority over demonic forces. You've seen me have power and authority over powerful people. And you've seen me have power and authority over every circumstance. Why, why are you? How many times do I have to save you before you have faith? And then he says this, still you have no faith. I'm just going to read this to close. I want you to know this about yourself. Um, I ultimately always feel like God's probably disciplining me because I'm such a knucklehead that I get, I'm getting what I deserve. And I've learned this about why, why trials come. It's found in 1 Peter. It says this. And he's talking about the struggle. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while it is necessary that you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold. Did you guys catch that? Like when Jesus looks at each one of us, he sees our struggle. He sees, what, he sees our doubts. He sees our lack of faith. But the most precious thing to Jesus about each one of us is our faith. Because he knows if we can not just have a belief system, but that we would actually believe him, then a little bit of faith changes the whole, it moves mountains. And all these boats around you, all these people that are looking for something to look for, like why would I look into this Jesus story? There's nothing that sets a believer apart more than when we believe. Agreed? There's lots of Christians that don't believe. They believe in Jesus for afterlife, but they have no faith in this place and in this time and in this struggle. The most important thing to Jesus about you is what is happening in the deepest part of your faith. And so would you maybe look at that thunderhead as it's coming a little bit differently? Would you not so much try to veer around it, but would you just know that Jesus, he goes into the thunderheads? That's where he takes us. That's why, as I've tried to teach my daughters, if you don't fear dying, you don't ever have to fear living either, which means you can live big. You don't have to, you know, you can take some risks. And when stuff happens, you don't just have to go dark and get cynical. You can literally go, God, I know you're in the boat with me. We'll get through and we'll see what's going on. So God, I pray over these friends especially those right now that are in the middle of a tempest. And I pray that you would just be an ever-present help in time of trouble. God, I pray for those that are cynical and on the dark side right now, those that maybe even have, have left the faith because of a circumstance that they could not find a theology for. I pray that you would whisper to each one of us that you're still there, that you've always been in the boat, and that you would call us back to you. May your people be people of courage, May we not be people of simple, pat answers, but would you empower us to live through the very darkest days and to shine your light to all the people around us. Everybody said, amen. Hey, love you guys. Thanks for enduring this, and uh, have a good life till I see you again, all right?